gospel. With that, let's turn our attention now to Psalm 28. We're going to read this passage together, and uh, since these words are breathed out by God and come with the very authority of Jesus Christ himself, if you're able, would you please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? The Holy Spirit says of David, To you, O Lord, I call. My rock, be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands. He will tear them down and build them up no more. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exults and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Psalm 28 that we just read is a plea for mercy. A plea for mercy. But if David were alive today and he went out on a street corner and he prayed this prayer out loud, I don't think it would make a lot of sense to many people in our culture. A prayer for mercy doesn't make a lot of sense in a culture that tells you everyone is basically a good person. We're not perfect, but you know, basically good. A prayer for mercy doesn't make a lot of sense in a culture that tells you you are worthy just the way you are. A prayer for mercy doesn't make a lot of sense in a culture that tells you that You're enough without needing anything else that you don't already have. A prayer for mercy doesn't make a lot of sense in a culture that tells you to look inside for what you need most. Follow your heart. Pursue your dreams. Be yourself. You know, maybe David just had low self-esteem. Maybe David needed to Stop comparing himself to others and just embrace the individual that he is. Maybe he needed to realize that he's strong enough. Maybe he needs to realize, well, he he really does have a good heart. Or 
maybe Psalm 28 is exactly what we need to help us realize that on our own, we are actually in a desperate situation. Psalm 28 speaks into a culture like ours, grabs it by the shoulders and says, wake up. All is not okay. Psalm 28 rips off our rose-colored glasses about our condition and the condition of humanity and shows us we are in need, desperate need. We are not okay on our own. And if God does not help us, we will perish. So what I hope you see in Psalm 28 as we walk through and look at David's prayer for mercy in detail, I hope you see that you must cry out to God for mercy. I hope you see your need for God's mercy. And not only your need for God's mercy, but God's abundant provision of mercy in Christ. We'll see why it's true that you must cry to God for mercy as we walk through this psalm. Why is it that we must cry to God for mercy? Well, first, in verses 1 through 5, it's because apart from God's mercy, you will receive what you deserve. Apart from God's mercy, you will receive what you deserve. We see this in verses 1 through 5. David prays in light of this truth that apart from God's mercy, you will receive what you deserve. He, he prays in light of that, starting in verse 1. He says, To you, O Lord, I call my rock. Be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. David calls on the Lord, Yahweh. He begs God to hear him. He begs God to answer him. He says, if you are silent, if you do not hear and answer my prayer, I will become like those who go down to the pit. Now, that term, the pit, is similar to another word that's often used in the Old Testament, the word sheol. Sheol is the place of the dead. Uh, sometimes it can just refer to death in general or the grave in general, uh, but sometimes it refers specifically to where the souls of the unrighteous go until the final judgment. And based on the context of Psalm 28, it seems clear that David, when he says the pit, is referring to the place of the unrighteous dead, where their souls go until the final judgment. David is saying, God, if you are silent, if you don't hear and answer my prayer, I am going to die and my soul is going to be condemned. Those are the stakes of Psalm 28. What is it that David is asking for? Why, why is it that he doesn't want God to be silent? What is it that he wants to he wants God to hear and answer. He's asking for mercy. Look at verse 2. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. David is asking. He is pleading 
for mercy. Mercy is God's help to those in desperate need. It's help for the helpless. It's help that spares people from getting what they deserve. And without this help, people perish. So David asks God to hear him. He raises his hands. He he postures his body in such a way that focuses his heart on God, the source of mercy. He directs his attention to specifically the, the tabernacle where the Holy of Holies was. It was at the time of David where Yahweh manifested his presence among his people. There in the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, was also the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of it was the mercy seat. That was where the priest would bring in the blood on the Day of Atonement and sprinkle the mercy seat to atone for sins. David directs his heart to Yahweh. He focuses his body toward the tabernacle to focus his attention on his only hope for mercy. His only hope for help. Yahweh is God. In verse 3, we see that the mercy David is asking for is specifically mercy to be spared from receiving the judgment that the wicked deserve. He says in verse 3, Do not drag me off with the wicked, with workers of evil who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. David asks not to be dragged off with evildoers. And he describes one example of the kind of evil that he has in mind or the nature of the evildoers that he is talking about. And he describes their hypocrisy. He says that the wicked put up a front of friendliness in the way that they talk. They act like a good neighbor. But what's going on in their hearts is a different story. There's evil in their hearts. They have malicious intentions and wicked desires. And this example of hypocrisy shows that David understands the true nature of sin against God. And it has a lot to teach us about the true nature of sin against God. Righteousness is a matter of the heart. It's one of the clearest things that Jesus taught in his earthly ministry that he emphasized is that righteousness is not about how you appear on the outside. It's not about what people think of you. It doesn't matter if you're considered a good guy or if everyone talks about what a sweet lady you are. If your heart has motives that do not seek to honor God, God sees past that popular exterior into the heart where that dishonoring of God resides. We must understand. We must understand that the one true God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, is also a holy and righteous judge. He will bring his righteous judgment upon all sin against him. He will do this through the offspring of David who wrote this psalm, David's offspring being the Messiah, Christ Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 27, the Son of Man is going to come with his angels and the glory of his Father, and he will repay each person according to what he has done. 
Jesus said in Revelation 22, 12, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Jesus Christ will judge the living and the dead. He will repay everyone for what they have done. We need to understand not only that he is the creator and therefore we're accountable to him. We need to understand not only that he will judge in righteousness, but we also need to understand that we have all sinned against this holy and righteous God. Apart from Christ, we are all wicked. Apart from Christ, we are all workers of evil. But as we see in Psalm 28, sometimes this is hard to see. It's hard to see that we're all wicked, evil doers. Because although we may be wicked on the inside, it might be that you still look good on the outside. You may be really nice. You might be a really good citizen. You might be charismatic, likable. You might give to charity, do good to others. You might even go to church. But what's in your heart? Do you do all of that good so that other people will do good to you? Do you treat others with kindness so that people will think highly of you? Do you give and serve to earn relational capital that you can spend when you need to? Do you come to church to network and build connections? What's in your heart? If in our hearts our motive is not to honor God, the Bible says that what is in our hearts is wickedness and evil, no matter what the exterior might look like. And no amount of external good can make up for the sins in our hearts. Our reputation among people will not earn us a favorable verdict from the judge of the world, Jesus Christ. Our only hope is the mercy of God. Apart from God's mercy, we will receive the judgments that the wicked deserve because of what we have done. But not only does David ask not to receive the judgment that the wicked deserve, he also asks that the wicked would receive the judgment they deserve. In verse 4, look at that verse. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. David asks for justice. Notice, he repeats that phrase, according to, according to, according to, three times. He asks that they would receive no more and no less than what they deserve. Done evil deeds, the, the works of their hands are evil. So David calls on God to give them what they're due, the judgment of a holy God. This is the righteous, just, due reward for wickedness, the judgment of God. But it's not just their evil works that are the problem. The works of their hands are not the only thing that David has in view. Look at verse 5. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands, he will tear them down 
and build them up no more. So not only are the works of their hands evil, they also disregard the work of Yahweh's hands. God has revealed himself in his works, and they've seen these works, but they reject the God who did them. Well, what are these works? Well, God worked in creation. He made the heavens and the earth. He made mountains and trees and rivers. He made humans, body and soul. And in his creation, God has revealed his eternal power and divine nature. But not only that, God has also acted in salvation. In David's day, he had acted in salvation. He brought Israel out of Egypt with signs and wonders. He brought them into the promised land by his mighty right hand. And God's work of salvation was a testimony to the nations such that when Israel sent two spies into Jericho, Rahab said to them in Joshua 2.10, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. So what you did to the and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. So again, God has worked in creation, and everyone's seen it. God has worked in salvation. It was a testimony to the nations. But what David says is the wicked see these works and do not honor Yahweh as God. So David calls on Yahweh to give them justice to bring upon them eternal destruction, tear them down, and never rebuild them. You need to understand that God will hold you accountable to how you respond to his works, the works of his hands. God will hold you accountable to how you respond to his work of creation. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans 1. God will hold you accountable to how you respond to his work of creation. Look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they, they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Creation itself is enough to prove there is a creator. That exists. And if God created you, you are accountable to him. So do you honor God as God? Or do you disregard the work of his hands? If you have seen God's work, yet you do not honor him as God, the Bible is clear 
What you deserve is the wrath of God. God will not only hold you accountable to how you respond to his work of creation, God will also hold you accountable to how you respond to his work of salvation. Turn with me another place to Hebrews 10. Starting in verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? And has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. And has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It may be that you know the gospel Backward and forward. You may know every Sunday school answer. You may have even seen God work in hearts of people who are close to you. People that you know and love. You may have seen God transform someone. Change their heart. Change them from the inside out. Through his work of salvation. But even though you know the gospel... And you've seen God work. You've decided to keep on sinning deliberately. You've decided to keep on living for yourself. You've decided to keep on doing what you want to do instead of following Jesus. You decided you're going to be the Lord of your own life. And you're not worried about it because you know the gospel. You've been really close to Jesus at work. Maybe you've even walked an aisle or prayed a prayer a time or two. But this is where we just need to be really, really clear about what the Bible is saying in Psalm 28 and Hebrews 10. If you are living for yourself, if your life is marked by continuing sin, deliberately keeping on sinning. That sin may look like any number of things. Sexual immorality, living in anger, living in bitterness, uh, living a life of, of overindulgence in substances, legal or illegal. 
just living for what feels good instead of what honors God. If you are continuing to deliberately sin, if that is the lifestyle, the Bible says there is no evidence that you are safe from God's judgment. Hebrews 10 says that if you are living for yourself and living for your sin, you should not expect that Christ's sacrifice covers your sins. Hebrews 10 says that the only thing you should expect, the only expectation you should have is a fearful expectation of judgment. Hebrews 10 says you should expect to die without mercy. You need to understand that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. You must cry to God for mercy. You must repent. You must confess your sins to God. You must forsake sin. You must turn to Jesus Christ and receive him as your Savior and Lord. Apart from God's mercy, you will receive God's judgment, which is nothing more and nothing less than what you deserve. Apart from God's mercy, you will receive what you deserve. But the good news of what we see in verses 6 through 9 is that God gives his mercy to his people in Christ. God gives his mercy to his people in Christ. In verse 6, David switches gears and he bursts out into praise. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas. For mercy. Now, back, if, you, if you're not back in Psalm 28, go ahead and flip there now. Because uh, in Psalm 28 and verse 2, which we've already looked at, David prayed, hear the voice of my pleas for mercy. But in verse 6, he praises God because he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. Even as David prays to God for mercy, he is confident that this God will give him mercy. He's so confident that the Lord will answer his prayer and give him mercy, he praises God in advance. When you pray for something that God has promised, he is so faithful, you can praise him for providing even when you haven't received what he promised yet. David praises God for hearing his plea for mercy. He's confident in God's provision of mercy. Well, why is David so confident? Because he has placed his faith in Yahweh. Look at verse 7. The Lord Yahweh is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts, and with my song I give thanks to him. So David describes Yahweh as his strength. David here is confident, but he is not self-confident. 
He is dependent upon his God as his strength. David also describes Yahweh as his shield. His protection and security are found in his God. Apart from this God, he will receive the judgment and condemnation of this God. But the very God who is the judge who pours out wrath is the God who shields David from that very wrath. And David has trusted Yahweh to do just that as his shield. He trusts Yahweh with his whole heart. And because of this, David is helped. Again, back in verse 2, David cried to Yahweh for help. Here he praises God for giving him the help that he asks for. He, he exults, uh, which is not a word that we often say um, nowadays, but exult just has this idea of, of rejoicing in someone or something, uh, finding joy. And that's what David is doing here. He is celebrating. He's finding joy in his God. He's finding joy in the fact that God has done all of this that he is asking for, this mercy. He he is exulting because he's so confident that his trust in God means he will receive mercy instead of what he deserves. So he celebrates. He sings praise to God. In verse 8, David then goes on to further describe who Yahweh is for his people. He says, The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Yahweh is not just David's strength. He's the strength of his people, the whole nation. Uh, but, But who he is to the nation is directly tied to who he is to David. As we see these two ideas together, the strength of his people, the saving refuge of his anointed, These two ideas are directly tied to one another. David was God's anointed king. This was a a special role that David served in that would find its ultimate fulfillment in Christ. And even in David's day, the anointed king was this representative of the nation. The success of the whole nation of Israel was bound up in the success of this one man, the king. And so for Yahweh to be the saving refuge of the anointed one was for him to be the saving refuge of all God's people, the whole nation of Israel. And so this leads then to David's closing prayer in verse 9. He says, oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. So because Yahweh is the saving refuge of his anointed, because Yahweh is the strength of his people, David calls on Yahweh to save his people. He calls on Yahweh not just for himself, but he calls on Yahweh to bless Israel with mercy. But notice in this last verse, David asks for more than just mercy to spare Israel and himself from judgments. David asks Yahweh to shepherd his people. To carry them forever. David asks Yahweh to shepherd his people. He asks Yahweh to be a shepherd for Israel like the shepherd he described back in Psalm 23. A provider who provides in such a way that I shall not want. A a leader who leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. A, A protector whose rod and staff comfort me. 
David's hope for Israel was not just that they would avoid a future of judgment. David's hope for Israel would that is that they would enjoy a future of being carried by God in his arms of mercy forever. We can have the confidence that David had. We can be confident that God will show us this same mercy if our hearts trust the anointed, the Christ, Jesus, for salvation. God gives his mercy to his people in Christ. The mercy we desperately need, the mercy without which we will perish. God gives his mercy to his people in Christ Jesus. As I said, the ultimate anointed, as we see in Psalm 28, is not David himself, but his descendant, Jesus Christ. Fully God and fully man. We've already seen that, yes, in his second coming, he will come to be the judge of the living and the dead. But not only is he the judge of the living and the dead, he is also the saving refuge for all who trust in him. Because when Jesus came in his first coming, the one who will judge the living and the dead received the judgment that the wicked deserved so that the wicked could place their faith in him and receive his mercy. Jesus came, he lived a perfect life, but he died to take the condemnation that the wicked deserved. So now, if you place your trust in Jesus and his work on behalf, if you find your refuge in him, you will not receive God's judgment. You will receive God's mercy, his kindness, his help for those in a desperate situation. So have you trusted in Christ? Have you placed your confidence in Christ alone and his mercy to save you from your sins? Have you given up your self-confidence? Do you depend entirely on Christ to be your strength and your shield? Have you trusted Christ with your whole heart? And if you have, do you exult in the mercy of Christ? Is the mercy of Christ just little more than eternal life insurance for you? Or do you delight in the salvation that Jesus purchased for you? Do you find yourself moved with gratitude for what Christ has done? Let's just take a moment and just exult together in Christ by calling to mind what Scripture tells us about God's mercy. First of all, God is merciful to the whole world. Psalm 145 and verse 9 tells us the Lord is good to all. And his mercy is over all that he has made. There is not one of us who has not tasted some of the mercy of God just in the fact that we are created 
and sustained by God. But God also promised mercy for his rebellious people. He told Israel when they had rejected him, gone into exile under his judgment. In Ezekiel 39, 25, he said, Now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. And I will be jealous for my holy name. This is a God who is merciful to all. This is a God who is merciful to rebels. And our salvation in Jesus Christ is entirely dependent on God's mercy. His help for the helpless. His help to spare us from what we deserve. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, God being rich in mercy because of the great Love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Paul says about himself in 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Our salvation in Christ Jesus is entirely dependent on the mercy of God, and his mercy is fully available in Christ. But God's mercy goes even beyond just saving us from the wrath of God. Think about when Jesus in his earthly ministry walked down the street and and the lame and the blind would cry out to them, cry out to him. What did they say? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And he would heal them saying, your faith has made you well. Uh, Paul says in Philippians 2, 27, that Epaphroditus was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, Paul says, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 1, that his ministry was a gift of the mercy of God. Hebrews 4.16 says, We can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is rich, abundant, overflowing mercy. It is mercy that we desperately need, and it is mercy that is readily available to all who cry out to God to show mercy on them. This is mercy worth exalting in. It's mercy that, yes, spares us from a future judgment that we rightly deserve, but it's also mercy that secures for us a future of being carried by God, receiving his mercy as our good shepherd forever. You must cry to God for his mercy. You must cry to God for mercy. Apart from God's mercy, you will receive what you deserve. But God gives mercy to his people in Christ. If you place your trust in Christ, he 
pours out mercy upon mercy upon mercy upon mercy. There is no situation, no heart so desperate, no soul so wicked that God's mercy is not over abundantly enough to cover and forgive and renew. God's mercy is available to all who cry out to him for mercy. So cry out to God for mercy. He will, he will pour out his mercy, his kindness, his help abundantly in Christ. We have an opportunity this morning to exult in the mercy that Christ purchased for us as we come to the Lord's table and partake in the Lord's Supper. As we take the Lord's Supper, we remember how Jesus died to purchase mercy for us. The bread represents Jesus' body broken for us. This cup represents his blood poured out for us. Jesus, in his death, received the judgment of God that we deserve, the judgment that the wicked deserve, so that the wicked who trust in him and his death on their behalf may receive not the cup of the wrath of God, but the full overflowing cup of the mercy of God. This sacred time at the Lord's table is for those who have trusted in the death and resurrection of Christ for salvation. So if you're not yet a believer, if you haven't yet called to God for mercy, we would ask you to refrain from partaking uh, partaking of the Lord's Supper until you come to faith in Christ. And then when you do, and we pray that you do, we pray that even in this moment you've heard the word of God, I, I pray that in this moment you would cry to God for mercy. And, and then after you do, uh, the next time we partake, we would invite you to joyfully partake along with the body of Christ. Uh, would also encourage you who are believers to examine your hearts as scripture calls us to so that you can partake in a worthy manner if your heart is harboring unrepentant sin we would ask you to refrain we saw in hebrews 10 that a life lived in unrepentant sin is a life directly opposed to the mercy of god to live in unrepentant sin is to hold on to sin and decline God's mercy. God's mercy is for those who know their sinfulness and give it up and throw themselves on God to receive his mercy. But if you are trusting in Christ for mercy, Jesus invites you to come to his table to exult in him, to exult in his mercy, to remember what he has done. Uh, And this is a meal that's not just for our local body. It's a meal for the global body of Christ. So if you're a baptized member of a gospel-preaching church in good standing, we would invite you as well to come to this table, to come and, and feast on the mercy and grace of Christ as we partake of the Lord's Supper. In a moment, I'm going to pray, and uh, then we'll, we'll have a song. During that time, 
Um, as you're ready, you can come and receive the elements. will be some up here to, to serve the elements to you. And we would just ask that you uh, take them back to your seat and hold on to them until um, everyone's been served. And uh, then we'll all partake together as an act of corporate worship. Let's pray together. Father, we bow before you in awe of your mercy in Christ. That Christ would receive the judgment that the wicked deserve so that wicked people like us could receive your mercy. Lord, that mercy is only available in Christ and it's only available because of Jesus' body broken for us and his blood poured out for us. And so as we come to the table, Lord, we remember our need for mercy, the wickedness of our own sin against you, and your abundant provision of mercy through the death of Christ. So Lord, we ask that as we worship you through the Lord's Supper, that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit in a fresh way. We ask that our worship in this moment would bring honor to you, our God, and that our worship to you in this moment would bring genuine comfort to our souls. Pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.